I love you and I appreciate you. I'm so incredibly thankful for you, for you and for this time that we get to spend together. I want to spend just a second sort of reviewing what we talked about last week because last week we started this new series, Comparatively Speaking. We're talking about some of the dangers and our natural tendency to compare ourselves to others. And last week we talked about how we have this tendency to compare ourselves to others and sort of measure how blessed we are, sometimes according to the wrong sorts of things. How we have this tendency to measure how blessed we are according to how much stuff we have or how much money we have or how comfortable our life is. And I, I hope, my hope, in, in every sermon that I preach, is the same thing happens to you that happens to me throughout the week. I catch myself. Do, do you do that? So all week this week, at least a dozen times, I probably caught myself and thought, oh, that red flag, I, I'm tempted to do that again. And so I hope that throughout this series, we're just kind of planting these little seeds and, and just giving you little, little warning signs to kind of pay attention. Am, am I doing that? Am I comparing myself to other people? Do I feel like I'm more blessed than they are, that they're less blessed than I am, or that I'm less blessed than they are according to how much money I have or how comfortable my life may be? And, and am I measuring how blessed I am in the right sorts of ways? And am I avoiding this danger of comparison? So in, in order to fully illustrate that, I want to show the, the next slide, this picture. Now, as you look at this picture, the, the orange circle on the right, you've probably seen pictures like this before, but the orange circle on the right looks bigger than the orange circle on the left, doesn't it? It looks bigger. The one on the right looks bigger than the one on the left, and, and I promise you it's not. I promise you it's the same size. I know because I, I duplicated them and put them on either side of the screen, so I promise you that they, they really are the same size, but the one on the right seems bigger. It looks bigger than the one on the left. Why is that? It's because we don't have any sort of absolute objective way to measure either one. We're, we're measuring them in our head by comparison, aren't we? And we're not only comparing one orange circle to the other orange circle, we're kind of measuring them according to what's going on in their orbit, right? All of the other circles that each one of them are juggling, and, and we're looking at the one on the right and we're saying, well, compared to those gray circles around it, that one is big. And the other one, compared to all the big gray circles around it, it's small, it's little. And so we're, we're measuring all of these things by comparison. And we do the same thing with our life, don't we? We sort of look at all the things we're juggling and we measure all the things that we're juggling compared to all the things that someone else is juggling. And we look at how they're doing with all the things they're juggling, and we compare that to all the things that we're juggling. And sometimes we look at them and we say, well, they're better than I am, or I'm better than they are. But just like this picture, it's an illusion, isn't it? So many times it's an illusion, and that's what I want us to think about, that comparison can create illusion. Comparison can create illusion. Just because it seems like you're better than someone else because of the way you're dealing with all the stuff in your life compared to the way they're dealing with the stuff in their life doesn't mean that that's true. 
or accurate, or that you're measuring yourself according to an absolute, an objective sort of standard. When you compare yourself to other people, and again, we do this all the time, don't we? We are constantly being competitive. We are constantly comparing ourselves to other people, wondering, are we stronger? Are we smarter? Are we better? Or are they stronger or smarter or better? And we have to recognize that comparison can create illusion, that we are tricking ourselves about who we are and how we're doing by comparing ourselves to each other. All year this year, we're going to talk about evaluating ourselves, and that's so important. It's important to evaluate yourself, to say, who am I? Where am I? Where am I in my journey? How am I doing in following Jesus? But in evaluating yourself, don't fall into the trap of evaluating yourself by comparison. Because again, comparison can create illusion, and we trick ourselves into thinking that we're better or sometimes that we're worse because we're measuring ourselves and evaluating ourselves by comparison. To, in order to illustrate that, look at Galatians chapter 5. So Paul writes this letter to the churches in Galatia, and he's writing to them specifically to, to help them to recognize that the people that are trying to force them to follow the law of Moses in order to be justified, that they're wrong. That their justification is found in Christ Jesus. And that they, they are justified because they're, they're following Jesus and walking according to the Spirit. And, and in living out this Christian life, you live this Christian life in community. Christianity must be lived in community, right? Christianity must be lived in community. You can't live out the Christian life in isolation. This is how you live out the Christian life. And he goes through and says, this is what it looks like when you're walking by the Spirit. It looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And the only way to know if you have that sort of fruit is to be in community with other people. But that's part of what makes Christianity so difficult too, isn't it? Christianity must be lived out in community, but when you're in community, there's this tendency to compare ourselves to each other because we're, we're, we're in each other's lives we're getting to know each other. We see each other at the best, and we see each other at our worst. Unless we just hold each other at arm's length, but that's not an option either, is it? And so we have to, we have to intimately know one another. We have to be in each other's homes. We have to listen to each other's struggles. And so Paul says, while you're living all of this out, listen to verse 25 of chapter 5. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Three words I want us to focus on for just a second. Conceited. Some translations may say something about vain glory. Vain means empty, right? Vain glory. So in other words, a person is conceited when they are puffed up, when they are, have an inaccurate or inflated view of themselves. We're conceited when we have an inflated and inaccurate view of ourselves. 
And Paul says there's going to be a temptation when you live in community to have an inflated and inaccurate view of yourself. Do not become conceited. If you walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, this is how you ought not to be conceited. Don't have an inaccurate view of yourself. And then he uses the word provoking one another. Provoking is almost like picking a fight with each other, challenging one another, competing with one another, thinking that you're superior to one another. Again, when you have an inflated an inaccurate view of yourself, you're always, you're always trying to outdo someone, aren't you? Trying to show someone up, trying to prove that you're smarter, trying to prove that you're better, trying to prove that you're more righteous, trying to prove that you know more or that you can live better. And he says, that's not the way you live in community as spirit-filled people. If you're walking by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit and don't be conceited, have an inflated, inaccurate view of yourself and don't go around provoking each other, always trying to one-up each other, always trying to prove that you're better than the other. And then sort of the, the opposite side of the same coin is envying one another. If provoking one another is when you think that you are superior to someone else and you're trying to prove it, envying one another is this fear that you are inferior to other people and you envy what they have and you envy who they are and you envy what they can do and you think that's not fair. And again, it's because we're constantly tempted to compare ourselves with each other, isn't it? And compete with each other. And Paul over and over again is warning, don't, don't have this kind of view of yourself. And don't, don't be in competition with each other. Don't provoke each other and try to outdo each other. And don't envy each other, afraid that you're inferior to who they are, so that you grow resentful and bitter. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... First of all, if anyone, because this can happen to who? One more time, this can happen to who? Anyone. This can happen to anyone, that anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, caught, caught can mean a couple of different things. It could mean that they're caught as if, as in someone found them out. They're doing something they shouldn't be doing and someone found them out. Someone caught them. Or it could mean, and I, I tend to lean this way, that the transgression itself caught them. It overtook them. It caught them by surprise. The way that God said to Cain that sin is crouching at your door, its desire is to have you, but you must overcome it. Sin has this tendency, doesn't it? Like a wild animal to surprise us and catch us off guard and overtake us. And Paul says, that's going to happen to the people that are around you. That's going to happen to your brothers and sisters. You're going to see this sort of thing. Maybe it's somebody who has had a, a problem with drinking. And they've been away from it for a while. And they've been trying so hard to, to give that up. And then one day it overtakes them. It catches them. Maybe it's somebody who really struggles with lust and they've been really trying to live a pure life, but that temptation catches them off guard 
It takes them by surprise. It overtakes them. Or maybe it's somebody who really struggles with their anger, and they've been doing a really good job of being self-controlled and loving and kind, but one day they fly off the handle and they get upset. That sin overtakes them. It catches them off guard. It surprises them. Now, you've been on that side of it, haven't you? You, you've experienced that where temptation, transgression, sin has overtaken you. And Paul says, not only is that going to happen to you, it's going to happen to other people around you. And if you're living in community with other Christians the way you're supposed to be, you're going to see this sort of thing happen. You're supposed to walk by the Spirit. You're supposed to live a life that's pure and good and loving and kind and all of these things. But it's going to happen that you get taken off guard. You get caught up in a sin. And so he says, if this happens, going on, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Several things there. You who are what? Spiritual. Even that requires some self-evaluation, doesn't it? Because the work of restoration must be done by spiritual people. How do you know if you're a spiritual person? Your fruit... Are, are you full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? If that's the sort of person you objectively are, that you are walking by the Spirit, you are filled with the Spirit, your life is full of these kinds of fruits, then the person who has been caught in a transgression, he needs you. She needs you. You who are spiritual should restore him. And that word restore can mean like putting something back together, like, like a broken bone. Something that's been broken, you're, you're mending it. Or, or fishing nets were, were said to be restored. Put it back the way that it's supposed to be. Your brother or sister who was trying, they were trying so hard and they got caught in a transgression. They need you. They need you to step into their life and do some mending, do some restoring, do some helping. Maybe they need you to step in and help restore them emotionally because they're filled with guilt and shame. Maybe they need your help to restore them behaviorally in that you need to help show them how to, to live a better life and to change what they're doing. Maybe they need you to restore them socially or relationally within the church, somebody to bring them back into the fellowship of the church because they've fallen away. Paul says when you're living in community, this is the kind of thing that's going to happen. There are going to be those of you that are trying to follow Jesus and walk by the Spirit, but you are overcome, overtaken, surprised by a transgression, and you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Love. Gentleness. Be, be gentle. Don't, don't think for a second that you're better than them. Don't give off the air that you are better than them. They, they don't need you to beat them up. They need you to restore them with a spirit of gentleness. Now, you've probably seen both, haven't you? If you've been in the church for any time at all, if you've been a Christian any time at all, you've seen both of these things happen. 
You've seen at times where a Christian is overtaken by a sin and by the response of other Christians that have pushed them even further from the body of Christ. And you've also seen where someone restores them in a spirit of gentleness. That's what broken people need. They need spiritual, gentle restorers. They need you to be a spiritual, gentle restorer, a mender, someone to take those broken bones and help put them back together again. Help take that broken emotional spirit and help put it back together again. Not in wagging your finger at them, not in beating them over the head, not in being harsh towards them, not in thinking or acting like you're better than they are, and, and certainly not excusing what's been done, but in a spirit of gentleness, helping to restore them. And then he goes on, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There's a warning here as well, isn't there? There's instruction when anyone is caught in a transgression, spiritual people, we need your help in restoring that person. But as you restore them, as you roll up your sleeves and you get down in the mud with people to help bring them up, be careful, keep a watch on yourself so that you're not tempted. Now, in what way would you be tempted if you're going to help somebody who's been caught in a, in a sin? Well, a couple of different ways. One is you might end up doing the very same thing they are. So many times we see someone in a sin and we think, well, that would never happen to me. That would never happen to me. I would never be tempted in that way. I, I don't struggle with that. That's not one of my struggles. That's not one of my problems. And then we're overcome as well. We're overtaken as well. We're surprised or caught by that transgression as well. But it's also possible that when we're going to restore someone and help someone, when we see someone that's caught up in sin, it's possible that we become proud that in seeing someone else that has done something wrong, we think to ourselves, I'm better than they are. Here's something that C.S. Lewis said, and I love this quote. I know it's long, but listen to this. C.S. Lewis says, it's a terrible thing that the worst of all vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our religious life. Now, he's talking here about pride. And he says, the very worst of vices can be smuggled into the very center of our religious life. He goes on and says, teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by pride. And he says, the devil laughs. He's perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship of pride. You see what he's saying? That as long as you are living a more, quote-unquote, moral life, as long as you're doing it because you think you're better than other people, you're actually becoming trapped in an even more dangerous vice. 
This idea that can easily happen to any of us when we see someone else that sins, if we think for a second, I'm better than they are, then we have fallen into an even more dangerous temptation. We have been overtaken by, surprised by, captured by, caught in a far more dangerous trap. Because now in our pride, we think we are invincible. And I think this is at the heart of what Paul is saying. That he is saying, when you see someone else in sin, help them, restore them, be gentle with them, go to them, take care of them, mend them, restore them, but be careful. Be careful that you don't think for a second, this could never happen to me, or I'm better than they are. Let's be honest with ourselves. Does that ever happen? Does it ever happen where you see someone else sin and you just kind of shake your head and think, how could they? I would never do something like that. I'm so much better than that. There is a real danger here that in being in each other's lives and helping one another with sin and seeing each other at our worst, that we might become proud. He says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This, this is how you fulfill the law of Christ, is bear one another's burdens. Love each other as Jesus has loved you. This is what Jesus has done for you, isn't it? He restored you in a spirit of gentleness. You were broken, and he helped put you back together. You, you needed mending, and he mended you. You needed healing, and he healed you. He took care of your burdens. Now, Paul says, now you go and do that for each other. Bear one another's burdens. This is how you fulfill the law of Christ. We are one body in Christ, aren't we? You are one member of the body, a finger or a toe or an eye or an ear or a nose. I am one member of the body. And the body doesn't say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a nose problem. I'm a finger. I, I, that's, not, that's not my problem. A nose problem isn't a finger's problem. Oh, I'm sorry, you're a toe. I, I'm an ear. I'm sorry, the toe's problem is not an ear problem. Yes, it is. If we're part of one body, your problems are my problems. Your burdens are my burdens. Don't think for a second when you see a brother or sister struggling in sin, that's not my problem. Yes, it is. If you want to fulfill the law of Christ, then bear one another's burdens. Do for them what Jesus has done for you. And when you see someone who's struggling, we, we can think in our head about the past and the present and the future. In the past, that was me. That was me. When you see somebody struggling, caught off guard by a transgression, think to yourself, that was me. That was me. And Jesus bore my burdens. Or about the present, that could be me. That could be me right now. That could be me right now. Whatever it is, that could be me right now. Or that might be me in the future. That might be me tomorrow or the next day. 
And love does for others what it would have someone do for itself. We, we love one another as we want to be loved. We treat others the way we want to be treated. How would you want someone to treat you if you were overcome by a sin? Because you have been, maybe you are, maybe you will be. How would you want to be treated? Do that for one another. And Paul says, this is, this is it. This is the law of Christ. This is how you fulfill the law of Christ. It isn't just keeping your own hands clean and just kind of staying back and saying, I, I just don't get involved in anybody else's life. You know, you just do you. I'll do me. You take care of you. I'll take care of me. You know, you got your problems. You take care of your problems. I'll take care of my problems. That's not the way we live as Christians. It can't be. This is not how we fulfill the law of Christ. We have to be intimately involved in each other's lives. And when we see someone struggling, we go and do for them what Jesus has done for us and what we would want someone else to do for us. And we help each other. We don't say, that's your, that's your problem. You gotta, you gotta clean up all your own messes. We don't believe that, do we? Praise God, we, we didn't have to clean up all of our own mess. Jesus has borne our burdens. And someone else has as well. Lots of people have. And so we do that for each other. Then he says in verse 3, For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. That's kind of harsh language, isn't it? Don't think that you're something when you're actually, what? Nothing. Come on now, Paul. Come on. When you're nothing? Yeah. In and of yourself? What are you? What are you? What have you earned? What do you deserve? What are you? He says, because you can easily deceive yourself, right? Comparison creates an illusion. Comparison can create an illusion that when you're comparing yourself to someone else, you are tempted to think, I'm something. Why? Well, because at least I didn't do that. At least I never went there. At least I never did those things. At least my life doesn't look like that. Come on, be honest. We've thought that before, haven't we? We've looked at someone else's life and because we thought, I've never done that, we are tempted to think that we're something when we're actually nothing. Paul says, if you do that, you're deceiving yourself. It's Jesus who is everything. And whatever we are, it's only because Jesus has given it to us, not because we've done it ourselves like we're something, but when we look down our noses at other people, when we don't walk by the Spirit, when we compare ourselves to each other, then we're tempted to think that we're something when we're actually nothing. And when we do that, it's an illusion. We're deceiving ourselves. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Paul says, stop comparing your life to their life so that now you think you're something when you're nothing. Test your own work. Test your own work. God doesn't grade on a curve, right? God doesn't grade on a curve. You're not going to get to judgment and say, well, Lord, you know, 
I know, I know I did a lot of things I shouldn't have done, said a lot of things I shouldn't have said, but at least I wasn't like him. At least I wasn't like her. Hey, did you see sister so-and-so? Did you see what she did? Did you see brother so-and-so? You know what he did, Lord, right? And I didn't do any of that. I wasn't like them. It's not how it works. Test your own work. Examine yourself objectively, absolutely look at your own life, what you're doing. Measure it by an absolute measurement, not comparatively. You have to examine your life and your work and your load. Stop comparing it to someone else's life so that you feel better about what you're doing. Now, of course, if we were to just stop here, and Paul's saying that everyone will have a reason to boast in himself alone and not in his neighbor, we might be tempted to think, well, then it's by my own merit that I'm going to be saved. I'm going to boast on, on what I've done. But we know better than that, don't we? On what basis will we stand or fall at judgment? On what basis can we boast or not boast? Here's what Paul says in verse 14 of the same chapter. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is the basis on which we will be judged. Are you surrendering your life to Christ? Are you surrendering your life to Christ? Again, it's really easy to deceive ourselves by illusion, by comparing our life to someone else and say, well, I haven't done those things. I haven't said those things. I never go to those places. I'm not that kind of a person, so I must be doing pretty well. Paul says that's not the basis on which you're going to be judged. The basis on which you're going to be judged is whether or not you have been crucified with Christ whether or not you are surrendering your life to him, whether or not you are walking by the Spirit, whether or not you have faith in Christ, not how well are you doing compared to someone else, but how well are you doing yourself in surrendering your life to Jesus? Stop looking at other people and trying to determine whether you're doing great or poorly based on how they're doing according to you. Look at your own life and ask, is this true of me? Am I the kind of person who can say what Paul says? That I won't boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world? In other words, stop asking, how do I compare to others? And start asking, how do I care for others? Isn't that what the fruit of the Spirit is all about? Stop asking. How do I compare to everyone else? And start asking, how do I care for everyone else? We're given objective standards by which to examine and evaluate our own life. Is your life full of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Are you bearing one another's burdens When you see someone else struggling with sin, do you restore them in a spirit of gentleness? Do you keep an eye on your own life? 
Are, are you taking care of this question? Whether or not you are crucified with Jesus, whether or not you have totally, completely surrendered your life to him, whether or not you are trusting him for your salvation, you can evaluate that without comparing yourself to anyone else. Again, this is hard, isn't it? Because we have this tendency to want to deceive ourselves. Again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. You are the easiest person for you to lie to, right? You are the easiest person for you to lie to because you want to believe your own lies. You want to deceive yourself. We all want to deceive ourselves. And so when we see someone else's life that makes us feel better about our own, we want to actually believe the illusion, and we have to stop. Stop asking, how do I compare to others? And start asking, how do I care for others? Am I fulfilling the law of Christ? Am I bearing one another's burdens? Have I really surrendered my life to him? Am I trusting him for my salvation? Because on the day of judgment... It's not, going to be, it's not going to be a question of how much good you did, especially not in comparison to anyone else. The question will be, have you trusted in Jesus? Have you surrendered your life to him? Are you doing for others what he has done for you? You can evaluate and answer that question without comparing yourself to anyone else. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're ready, maybe for the, the very first time to surrender your entire life to Jesus. As Pete said earlier, be buried with him in baptism. Surrender your life to him. Trust him to take care of your past and your present and your future. Give him your all. So that from now on, you won't have to compare yourself to anyone else. You won't have to measure yourself according to anyone else. You won't have to evaluate yourself according to anyone else. You simply begin and continue entrusting your soul to Jesus. And maybe you're ready to be baptized into Christ so that you can be forgiven and so that you can begin this life of walking by the Spirit with Him. Or maybe somewhere along the way, you were baptized into Jesus, but you're not and haven't been walking by the Spirit. And you need to recommit your life to Him. Because your life hasn't been filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And you need to recommit your life to Jesus and open your life back up to the Spirit of God that you can walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Or maybe all the, the balls you're trying to juggle in this world, all the things you're dealing with, you're just struggling. And you need people to come into your life and bear your burdens. Maybe you've been overtaken by a sin. Maybe you've been overcome and surprised you were trying so very hard to do what was right and good and you were taken off guard. And you need people, spiritual people in your life who will restore you in a spirit of gentleness. Whatever it is that you need, 
We're here to bear one another's burdens. Our shepherds would love to visit with you and pray with you after service, or you can come forward now. As together we stand and sing this song.